1 Samuel 17. Perhaps one of the best known stories in the Old Testament, certainly the best known in the book itself. And it's a lengthy chapter, but it will profit us to read it with care. This is God's word to us. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle. And they were gathered at Sukkot, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Sukkot and Azekah in Ephesh Damim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah, and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side, with a valley between them. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail. And the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam. And his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron. And his shield-bearer went before him. And he stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine. They were dismayed and greatly afraid. Now David was the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah, named Jesse, who had eight sons. In the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. The three oldest of Jesse had followed Saul to the battle. And the names of his three sons who went to the battle were Eliab, the firstborn, and next to him Abinadab, and the third Shammah. David was the youngest. The three eldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For forty days, the Philistine came forward and took his stand morning and evening. And Jesse said to David, his son, Take for your brothers an ephah of this parched grain and these ten loaves and carry them quickly to the camp to your brothers. Also, take these ten cheeses to the commander of their thousand. See if your brothers are well and bring some token from them. Now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. And David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with a keeper and took the provisions and went, as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the encampment as the host was going out to the battle line, shouting the war cry. And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle 
army against army. And David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. As he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. And David heard him. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? The people answered him in the same way. So shall it be done to the man who kills him. Now Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men. And Eliab's anger was kindled against David and he said, Why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. And David said, What have I done now? Was it not but a word? And he turned away from him toward another and spoke in the same way, and the people answered him again as before. When the words that David spoke were heard, They repeated them before Saul, and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, You're not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail, and David strapped his sword over the armor. He tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I've not tested them. So David put them off. Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch, his sling in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield-bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog, that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. 
The Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head, and I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. And that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear. For the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hand. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand into his bag and took out a stone and slung it and it struck the Philistine on the forehead. And the stone sank into his forehead, and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone, and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose up with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron, so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Sha'arim as far as Gath and Ekron. And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines, and they plundered their camp. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem. He put his armor in his tent. As soon as Saul saw David go out against the Philistine. He said to Abner, the commander of the army, Abner, whose son is this youth? And Abner said, as your soul lives, O king, I do not know. And the king said, inquire whose son the boy is. As soon as David returned from striking down the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. And Saul said to him, Whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I'm the son of your servant, Jesse the Bethlehemite. We ask God to bless this reading of his word. Let's pause in prayer. Let's pray. Father, as we come to contemplate these words, we ask that your voice would speak with freshness and with challenge. This familiar story would Teach us how we ought to live in our world in this time as we do battle for your kingdom against great foes, living and serving to your glory, we ask, through Christ our Lord. Amen. So this is a long and well-known chapter, perhaps one of the, the best-known stories in the Bible. Certainly in the Old Testament, it must be neck and neck with Noah's Ark, as which is best known and most loved. And because of its over-familiarity, there's this danger that it could be both misunderstood and misapplied, even by mature believers. So tonight, as we make our way through this passage, I, I hope that we can do it with fresh eyes to see and with attentive ears to hear what, what God may be saying to us in words that we have known 
really, since we have known anything. We have known the story of David and Goliath. Firstly, let's reintroduce ourselves to the central characters. Verses 1 to 11 really introduce us to this man called Goliath. Now, the only reason there was a problem with uh, the Philistines in general and with Goliath in particular was that in the past, the children of Israel had failed to obey God. He had sent them into this land of promise. He had empowered them and enabled them to drive out the occupying peoples that were there, but they hadn't obeyed him. They hadn't faced that challenge and they had failed to eradicate all threats. And as it often is in the Christian life, past failures lead to present problems. And so it was for these people. Their their failure in the past to eradicate the Philistines meant that in the present they had grown to become a real threat. And here in particular they're challenged by this huge giant of man, Goliath, nine foot, six inches tall. He was the Philistines' weapon of intimidation. And this unilateral proposal was on offer. Clearly we can see that it was not accepted by both sides. But there was to be a representative head who would be chosen for each nation and they would do battle. And it would be winner take all and give mastery in the region. So we read in in verse 10, the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may Fight together. And really what we see throughout the chapter again and again is what what I'm calling a motif of misunderstanding. A motif of misunderstanding. Mistakenly, Goliath thought that he was representing the Philistines and that there would be this warrior who would represent Israel and they would do battle and, and they would take part in a national struggle. But Goliath had seriously miscalculated. He had failed to understand what was really happening here. He didn't see that he was actually representing Dagon, the false god of the Philistines. And the one that he would be coming into combat with would represent Yahweh, the living God. Because behind every earthly conflict, there is this spiritual battle that wages in the heavenly. Now these two, Yahweh and Dagon, had gone toe-to-toe before. And if you look back into chapter 5, things had not gone very well for Dagon in that struggle. He was humiliated because, as we understand, he's not a real God. And so in that age, in that day, to defy the nation of Israel was to defy Israel's God. And today, to defy the church of Jesus Christ is to defy the Lord of the church. And the second misunderstanding was among the Israelite army. Verse 11. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistines, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Perhaps we can excuse them because they didn't have their Old Testaments open the way we do, but but we have our Bibles open and, (coughs) excuse me, If we look across the page into chapter 16, we're reminded of of what Samuel was told by God. That message that came, he was so impressed by the the striking figure of the eldest son of Jesse, Eliab. He, He stood before him and God spoke whispering into his ear saying, Do not look 
on his appearance or on the height of his stature. Because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Don't be misled by the height of his stature. Don't be confused by how tall he is. Height doesn't make a man. So we looked at this a couple of weeks ago, how we are so easily swayed by what we see. Outward appearance so quickly misleads us. But God says to Samuel, that's not the central issue here. If someone is nine foot six or four foot six, it's irrelevant. Let me tell you, says the Lord, everybody looks small in my eye. Beside the greatness of God, human physique is nothing to be boasting of. So we're introduced to to glass. Secondly, we we, we are introduced to David, verses 12 to 30. And if ever there was a sort of meanwhile back at the ranch verse, this is it, verse 12. Now David was the son of an Ephrathite, of Bethlehem and Judah, named Jesse, who had eight sons. In the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. And it's in this way that the author of the book introduces us to this central character for now and the remainder of 1 Samuel. And we see Goliath's height and strength as a very stark contrast with, with David. And this is a time when able-bodied men would all have been rallied to arms for the fight. But but David's not there. He's at home. He's minding the sheep. Youngest son, runt of the litter, given the most menial task on the family farm. Now, I don't know whether it was promotion. Certainly it was a change of uh, task that he's given the job of delivering his brother's packed lunches and bringing any message back to his father from them, making sure the boys are doing all right. And all of a sudden, in this very mundane interruption in his ordinary daily routine, God is at work bringing deliverance to his people. And I wonder, have you ever considered that? Just you're, you're going about your business. You've made your plans. You think, well, tomorrow I'm doing this and this and this. And, and then for some unknown reason, things change. Often you find these interruptions frustrating. But God is seeking through these to do something great. I wonder, do you live in anticipation that, that, that God might be working miracles in your life in, in ways that you could never have imagined when you set your feet on the floor out of bed in the morning? So David arrives with the encamped army, verse 26. And David said to the man who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? The first time in the book of 1 Samuel, David speaks. And we note that suddenly into this story that the name of God is mentioned. There's nobody in any situation that's mentioned before, but now David comes And he speaks of God. He brings God into the equation. And I confess that 
Oftentimes I am slow to bring God into the ordinary, everyday events of my life. Sometimes even in my struggles, I'm slow to look to God for answers and help. It's only when circumstances overwhelm me and I find myself floundering in my own inadequacies that I become passionate and persistent in prayer. That's my testimony, and perhaps it could be yours also. You know, my prayer life sometimes, apart from those everyday, ordinary, routine prayers, in the middle of, of the day and the ordinary circumstances, <clears throat> excuse me, my, my prayer life resembles something that bears the message only used in case of emergency. But David is God conscious. David is aware that God is operating here. And he immediately understands that all is unfolding is an aspect of God's sovereign prayer at work. Everything that is happening here, all that we read up to date, is not a military matter, but a theological one. David hears the challenge of Goliath so differently from the others around him. His is not the limited view of the faithless. His is the limitless view of the faithful. And you see here, as, as the writer records for us, he gives us every detail of Goliath's armor, all his weaponry, and it's all absolutely irrelevant because Goliath is defenseless. He's a man without the shelter, without the protection of the living God. Some weeks ago we noted this about Jonathan as he went into battle with the Philistines. And here again, David points out that he is among the uncircumcised. Goliath does not live under the favor, the covenant favor of Yahweh, the ever-living God. And I ask you, do you know the value and the privilege of living under God's covenant favor? Do you understand the difference that makes to your week as it unfolds and lies before you? Do you see and rejoice in the good hand of God upon your life from day to day? The love that he has towards you because you are his covenant child. Do you face even in the most difficult of challenges with this great confidence that even in this, even in this trial, this trouble that has come your way, God is working out good purposes for you and for those you love. Those who are God's covenant people live different lives from the world. We are under God's covenant favor consistently, endlessly. And one quick uh, Side note about Eliab. Anybody who comes from a family of brothers can immediately resonate with what uh, Eliab does here. His young brother comes and he just slags him off. He just pours scorn on him. He wounds him with his words. Without justification, he misjudges his motives, belittles him. The late Reverend William Still in his book, The Work of the Pastor, commented, The devil always does a deadlier work through hardened Christians than through the unconverted. And Eliab may have lined up on the side of the Israelites. His name may mean God is my father. 
but he speaks with the accent and the intent of a Philistine of Goliath. It's clear from his words whose side he is on. The tone of his voice tells us he is not true to Israel. We've met Goliath, we've met David. We see now that David meets Saul, verses 31 through to 40. Does this microphone keep cutting in and out? Yeah? No? Seems to me to be there and then it's not, sorry. So if I'm hollering very loud, apologies, but uh, sometimes I think you're not hearing me at all and then sometimes I'm deaf to myself. So. But anyway, there's a story told of a man called George Scott, a one-legged school teacher from Scotland. And he came to Hudson Taylor and he offered himself for missionary service in China. And Hudson Taylor said to him, with only one leg, why do you think of going as a missionary? And Scott replied, I do not see those with two legs going. None of the fighting men gathered in the Israelite army were rushing to go into battle with Goliath. None are prepared to answer the call in spite of all the sweeteners that that Saul had offered tax-free for your family for life. The, The hand of his daughter in marriage. No one was going to volunteer. But as we see or I saw two weeks ago in the anointing of David, David is a man with a different spirit. God has rushed upon him and God has entered his heart. The late Haddon Robinson, who's teaching shaped the preaching of many comments. In any situation, what you are determines what you see. And what you see determines what you do. And David is a man in whose heart the Spirit of God is dwelling in its fullness. And because God lives in him, that changes, transforms his outlook. What he sees, he, he doesn't see as other men see. He does not fear giants. And so this controls his actions and he is eager, ready, willing to step up to the fight. And so, because of his willingness, we're introduced to King Saul, the third major character in the story. And Saul has much to fear. One thing you remember about Saul when we're introduced to him, he was head and shoulders taller than all the other people in the land of Israel. Now, if you need someone to stand and fight a man nine foot six, where do you think the fingers are going to point? Who seems like the most obvious person, candidate for that, the most physically qualified to match up? Saul was scared. And David's audience with the king begins with this statement, verse 32. David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail, especially your soul, because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. Now, I've mentioned a number of times in studying for Samuel that that Saul was a man not of faith, but of fear. And when action is called for, at, at best, Saul is a hindrance to it. And when trouble is around, he's usually resting somewhere, sleeping somewhere, sitting somewhere, hiding somewhere. Paul is a man who represents those who pursue safety and comfort, who are concerned about self-preservation. And such an attitude is anti-Christian. 
For the pathway into which Jesus calls his followers is a pathway of self-denial, cross-carrying. It's fraught with danger. We must never, ever downplay the, the cost of following Christ. We must never say that, you know, become a Christian and all your problems will disappear. No, there are giants about. There's real powerful opposition to those who are God's people. We must never proclaim that in in coming to Jesus, all your troubles will be swept away. You'll not be singing as you go, since the Lord saved me, I'm as happy as can be. At least not with the world's understanding of happiness. No, if anything, coming to... uh, A true faith in Jesus Christ makes you more aware of your problems. You you discover problems you didn't even know you had when you uh, become a follower of Jesus. All those troubles are not swept away. They're not, uh, they don't vanish. But what you do have is that now you have someone who can carry these burdens for you. Now you have someone who can equip you to overcome them. Now you have someone in whom you can trust who will enable you to be triumphant against them. Remember what Jesus said to his disciples, John 16, 33. He said, in this world you will have tribulation, you will have trouble. But but take heart. I have overcome the world. The brethren scholar William MacDonald comments, Victory in the Christian life is not the absence of conflict, but the presence and protection of God in the midst of conflict. Now we saw earlier that for the Israelites, their their past failures had led to their present problems. And for, for David, we see the very opposite to be true. His past victories give him promise for the present. Again, look at the great testimony he brings before the king. Verses 36 and 37. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. How would David know that as he went into this battle, how could he be confident that God would be with him? Well, it wasn't just that his past victories give him confidence for this present conflict, but rather that it was his future was foretold and that fostered faith for today. His future was declared by his God and that sustained him in that moment. God's prophet Samuel had come to him and he had anointed him. He had declared that David would be king. And David believed the prophet's words. He would not, he could not die in battle that day because David would be king. God had set him apart for the throne. Elsewhere, we read Psalm 27, 1 and 2, well-known verses, words of David. He said, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. 
Of whom shall I be afraid when evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes? It is they who stumble and fall. What's the root whereby people arrive at that place of great confidence in God where their hope in God takes them beyond doubt and fear? When they know that he is on their side, whatever opposition they face, that he is the stronghold, the protector of their life. How do you get there? Well, we get a bit of the answer in those verses that we read in Romans 12, 1 and 2. I hope you, you know those words. Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Paul here tells us that sacrificial self-giving in God's service and scripturally induced mind renewal, that equips someone to discern what is God's good, acceptable, and perfect will. We know we're in the will of God when we have gone through this process. Many of you have read the works of evangelist Alan Redpath, who has written, The only thing that gives a fellow or a girl courage to stand in their immediate circumstances if they're in God's will with all the pressures around them is the knowledge that God has sent them there. When we know God has put us in a situation when we know it's his will to be there we are not afraid. Let me dare to skip through that little portion where God or where where, where Saul offers his extra 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 large uniform to uh, Uh, small to medium, David. I'm sure you've heard some very good sermons on that. And push on quickly to the conflict between David and Goliath. Verses 41 to 58. I'm sure, again, some of you have read Chuck Swindle. Got to love Chuck Swindle's turn of phrase. He writes writes and says, uh, Goliath to me is like a cross-eyed discus thrower. He does not set any records, but he sure keeps the crowd awake. He's out there blundering every day for 40 days and 40 nights, belching out his blasphemy and never putting his money where his mouth is. And now the time comes. So Goliath encounters David. We hear his sneering voice. Again, the the phrases that trip off Goliath's tongue should remind us of the the tone and toxicity of the the comments of Eliab. It's important to realize that what Goliath is saying here really helps us to understand the, the teaching, the truth behind this portion of Scripture. Because we we have this motive of misunderstanding again. And particularly this is an FA cup. Weekend. And every FA Cup weekend, they talk about giant killing. And this imagery of this unexpected outcome in a sporting contest. 
And there's some of us here this evening who still feel the sting of a 3-2 defeat by Colchester United. Fourth division Colchester United against high-flying Leeds United in 1971. Giant killing. Still haven't got over it. Giant killing. David and Goliath conflict. And that's what we think of as we turn to this text. And it's wrong. It's rubbish. This wasn't a fair fight. And it wasn't fair not because they had this well-trained military man with his fancy bronze armor pitted against a youthful shepherd boy. That's not why it wasn't fair. Practically. Humanly speaking, Goliath never had a chance. He came against David, but David was armed with what was the equivalent of a modern day handgun. All Goliath had was a a sword and a spear. David had a gun. His sling, able to repel a stone at, at speeds between 100 and 150 miles per hour. Those of you who are well up in your ballistics will realize that the slowest bullet... 0.22 0.22 caliber is just less than 300 miles an hour, but, but it's still pretty fast, 150 miles an hour. Goliath hadn't a chance. It was said of the Benjamites, the people of, of Bethlehem, that, that, that they could hit a, a hair, a human hair, with their sling stone. But that's not the real reason, not the human reason. The reason this was not a fair fight, the reason why Goliath never had a chance was that David stepped into this battle with victorious faith in the omnipotent God. The size of the giant was irrelevant. He could have been 100 feet tall. It would have made a big bang when he hit the ground. The size of the giant was irrelevant. It's the size of the God in whom we trust that matters. I hope you sing with gusto with the children. My God is so big, so strong, and so mighty, there's nothing that he cannot do. And do we believe it? See, Goliath went into this conflict, and his confidence was in himself, in his muscles, in his might. And where did it get him? Nowhere. In the dust without his head. And supremely, this conflict was not fair because the outcome had been foretold hundreds of years before. At the beginning of time, whenever the serpent misled Adam and Eve, God had spoken, he brought judgment. Genesis 3.15, he said, I will put enmity Between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And Goliath comes out and he he speaks out these words of disdain, but he doesn't know who he's speaking to. David is the Lord's anointed. The oil of anointing had been poured out upon him. He had been christened or in Hebrew he had been messiahed to be king whenever Goliath spoke against the king the chosen king he sealed his own fate verse 51 then David ran and stood over the Philistine